There's a problem with the current mental health care system in Nunavut and its accessibility. If you need proof, just look to the suicide rates. It's clear, something isn't working, and people are suffering as a result. So what is the problem? In this podcast, I'll be sharing my experiences with the mental health care system in Nunavut, looking at some of the statistics surrounding mental health in the North, as well as making some recommendations as to what I think could be some of the first steps towards changing the system for the better. When I was 11 years old, I would wash my hands until they bled. I would turn on light switches with my elbows and tell my parents that I loved them each three times before I went to bed, or else I feared they'd be gone before the morning. Guilt and fear were a part of everyday routine. There were two mental health nurses in my town around 1,600 people, circa 2012. They would switch out with one another periodically. There were no child psychiatrists permanently situated there, so I was sent to Yellowknife for evaluation and I was diagnosed with moderate obsessive compulsive disorder. I attempted therapy back home, but found that I didn't connect with the mental health nurse currently there. I decided to just live with the OCD. I can recall being embarrassed when my classmates commented on how often I'd wash my hands, and I also remember being mad when I told my best friend at the time about my diagnosis and she shrugged it off, saying that her mother had said, Everyone was a little OCD. When I was 14, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I had spent months studying the validity of my condition, taking surveys online to try to calm the fear in the back of my mind that I was faking it. Finally, I worked up the courage to go back to the mental health nurse I had seen for my OCD. I just wanted a confirmation that what I was going through was real. I spoke to the mental health nurse about my recurring thoughts of self-harm, how there were times when I thought about how I'd kill myself, and was met with the advice that I shouldn't be concerned with a diagnosis because a diagnosis could be used as a crutch in life. However, after meeting with another psychiatrist, I got the diagnosis I needed to validate my feelings. This depression and anxiety later consumed my life and led me to quit school. To this day, I wonder if I use my depression as an excuse. I became a patient of a child psychiatrist in Yellowknife, whom I'd travel to meet every two months with one of my parents. I'd often feel frustrated after these meetings because I felt like there wasn't a real understanding between the two of us. This reached its climax during our last session. It had been my dad who had accompanied me this trip, and we both sat in this lady's office as I explained to her that I was struggling quite heavily with getting out of bed to go to school, this being while I still attended. Depression had me in its thrall, and it was affecting me significantly. The psychiatrist listened to my dad and I talk and proceeded to tell him that I was manipulating he and my mom. She informed him that I was quite capable of getting out of bed, but I didn't want to, and so I convinced them that I couldn't. Her recommendation was that I be sent to a specialized group home in Saskatchewan, where they'd be able to handle me properly. I left her office in tears. I wonder if there were others struggling like I was who ended up in the group home at her recommendation.
There are some important statistics on mental health and suicide rates in Nunavut that I'm going to talk about now. It's important to remember, though, that these statistics are based off of real people, those who needed help and those who continue to need help. They are not and will never be just numbers. Although a Stats Canada survey reported that only 3% of Inuit had suffered a major depressive episode and only 6% were at a high risk of depression, a study done by McGill University reported that 60% of people who died by suicide in Nunavut suffered from depression during their lifespan, in comparison to 25% of people in the general population. Suicide rates among Inuit youth are 11 times the national average. 23.1% of Inuit men and 23.8% of Inuit women were listed by Stats Canada in 2012 to have a prevalence of lifetime suicidal thoughts compared to 11.1% and 13.8% of non-Indigenous men and women, respectively. In a report by the Government of Canada in 2006, it was stated that 27% of all deaths in Nunavut since 1999 were the result of suicide. If this situation sounds grim, it's because it is. If these numbers seem heavy, it's because they are. When I was 15 years old, I attempted suicide. I went to the health center where they put me on an IV and had me drink some charcoal to neutralize my stomach. I spoke to the mental health nurse briefly, and a few hours after I had come in, I was leaving. I've been told that for more serious cases, the person threatening to harm themselves is detained in a cell at the RCMP station overnight because there's nowhere else in town where they can be kept safe from themselves. Imagine this. You're in a highly emotional, vulnerable state, and you're put in a holding cell at the police station. You spend the night alone with your thoughts in an unfamiliar bed, under surveillance. Would you feel better in the morning? After I left the health center, I went on a walk with my best friend and made jokes about my attempt, moving on. Because before I had even had time to process what had happened to me, what I'd wanted to do to myself, I was out in the world again. I think that's the scary reality for a lot of people dealing with mental health issues, especially in a place where mental health care isn't easily accessible. You're expected to move on quickly, oftentimes without having the chance to talk about it, because you're scared to. There are 25 communities in Nunavut as listed by the government of Nunavut. Within those 25 communities, there are 32 mental health nursing positions, with larger communities having more than one mental health nurse due to size. 14 of these positions are indeterminate and 18 are casual. As of September 2019, there were mental health workers in only 17 communities. Some communities are serviced by others, Greece Fjord is served by Resolute Bay, which is a 90-minute flight away, and Whale Cove and Chesterfield Inlet share a mental health nurse position, despite the fact that the trip between the communities includes an overnight stay in Rankin Inlet. In a 2006 report by Stats Canada, it was stated that Nunavut had the lowest ratio of psychologists versus population, with only 17 psychologists per 100,000 people. Nunavut doesn't even have 100,000 people. In 2006, the year of the report, Nunavut had a population of only 38,813 people. This would mean that there were about five psychologists working there at the time. 
After two years of not attending school and multiple attempts at treatment, I decided that I wanted to try an inpatient program. My depression had me spending most days in bed, eating infrequently, and losing connections with friends and family, just to name a few side effects of this thing that had taken up residence in my head like some kind of parasite. My family and the mental health workers in my community worked to put together an application to a mental health facility in Ontario. The application process started in December 2015. I was admitted to the Adolescent Inpatient Program in May 2016. Stepping into the ward for the first time, I felt a surge of anxiety. I didn't know what to expect. My mom was with me for my admission process, but after she left, it felt like I'd been stranded on a different planet. Slowly, though, this different planet morphed into a familiar habitat. During my time there, I was treated with two types of therapy that I hadn't heard of in any of my treatments back home, CBT and DBT. CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, in particular became a strong tool in my mental health toolbox. The government of Nunavut did pay for my stay there, as well as for an escort who could switch out with another person every month. My parents took turns as my escort for the entire duration of my treatment, however this left my younger sister in a one-parent household for the three months that I was in the facility. For single parents from Nunavut with more than one dependent, the situation I was in during my time at the mental health facility, having one parent with me until I was discharged, would be next to impossible. For parents who aren't able to leave their jobs for an extended amount of time, it would be next to impossible. This would leave any younger individuals admitted to this facility in a new place without their support system. And this is under the assumption that their family is supportive of their receiving mental health help. Because let me tell you, without the support I received from my family, I wouldn't have made it to the facility in Ontario. I don't even know if I would have made it in general. I was discharged in late August 2016. When I got home, I began speaking with the new mental health nurse, but what I was receiving was primarily talk therapy, and very little, if any, of the CBT I had found to be so helpful. Because of this, I found myself slipping back into old depressive routines. Eventually, I had to begin outsourcing mental health care. To be clear, having the ability to outsource mental health care is a privilege. If an individual finds that the care within their community isn't working for them for whatever reason, the next option may appear to be to search for that care outside of their community. However, the cost of private counseling in Canada can range from $50 to $240 for an hour-long session. While employees of the government of Nunavut are able to claim $1,000 worth of therapy a year, depending on how many sessions per month this hypothetical person is having and the cost of these sessions, Insurance could only cover a month's worth of therapy, leaving the individual responsible for the majority of the payments. This becomes a disturbing piece of information when coupled with the fact that about 70% of Inuit homes in Nunavut are food insecure, this rate being eight times higher than the national average, for comparison. How is a person in a food insecure home supposed to be able to even pay an extra $50 a month? When a decision has to be made between receiving needed mental health care and having food on the table, Something is desperately wrong. This doesn't even take into account that food insecurity is itself a determinant of higher mental distress, creating a vicious cycle where receiving mental health help may not even be beneficial because the cause of the mental distress is not being dealt with. There are certain traumas that occur on a cultural level, such as food insecurity as well as missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and residential school history, 
which includes but is not limited to physical, sexual, and mental abuse, and forced separation from one's family and culture. These traumas are shared by many in our communities, and because of the lasting mental impact they have, capable of being carried through generations, culturally relevant treatment for mental illness may be entirely beneficial. It's also been speculated that Inuit would have a different way of presenting mental illness, one that isn't necessarily understood yet by the outside world. If this is the case, because we're presenting mental illness culturally, it would make sense then that we should be treated with our culture in mind as well. There are several indicators of good mental health, including knowing and taking pride in who you are, enjoying life, and coping with stress in a positive way. Involving culture and treatment may strengthen an individual's ability to achieve these characteristics. With this in mind, it would then be important for a mental health worker in Nunavut to have a thorough understanding of the traumas Inuit have faced historically and the traumas we face presently, as well as have the ability to incorporate cultural knowledge and activities into a treatment plan for those in need of culturally relevant mental health care. It's important to note, however, that culture should not be used as a blanket treatment, because every individual's mental health needs are unique. It should be the job of the mental health care practitioner to work with their patient to form a treatment plan that works for them. So here are my recommendations. Nunavut needs more indeterminate mental health workers. When I asked others about what their experiences were like with the mental health care system, many mentioned how as soon as you got comfortable with a mental health worker, they would leave. Here's the thing. If you're constantly talking with a stranger, having to repeat your story, never given the chance to get comfortable with them, there's a certain point where you're not going to want to open up anymore. This significantly impacts your ability to receive the help that you need. As mentioned earlier, none of it has more casual mental health positions than it does indeterminate ones. This needs to change. Not only do we need more indeterminate mental health workers, we need mental health workers trained in more than talk therapy. CBT and DPT are incredibly helpful to many struggling with their mental health. But in Nunavut, there are few opportunities to receive these kinds of therapy. Now, I have been told that there will be CBT and DBT training for the Katikmiut region, but making this training Nunavut-wide so that individuals seeking mental health help have the opportunity to receive this therapy would be highly beneficial in my opinion. Additionally, these mental health workers should be capable of providing culturally relevant treatment to those who need it. There also need to be better systems in place for those at risk of harming themselves. Having suicidal ideations is a traumatic experience in and of itself without being placed in the RCMP station for the night. This precaution may end up only contributing to pre-existing mental health conditions. In my community, there is a mental health facility, but you're able to walk out at your own discretion, which isn't necessarily the best place for someone who's at risk. None of it needs a facility for those who are at immediate risk of suicide, preferably in each community because leaving home for treatment may not only be stressful and that is an unfamiliar experience, but it may be a separation from necessary support systems. Support groups should be formed. When dealing with mental illness, it can be difficult to recognize that you're not alone. For those in recovery, it may be advantageous to have support in returning to everyday routine. For those who are struggling, a support group may help them to get to the recovery stage. I recognize that none of them may not necessarily have the funds for the types of facilities you may find in the South, but even holding group therapy sessions may be a more affordable way of supporting those in need and letting them know that they're not alone in their struggles. As well as support groups for those dealing with mental health issues, I recommend family support groups to raise awareness of these issues and to support families while their relative is combating mental illness. 
When my mental health started declining, it was difficult for my family to understand what was going on and to cope with the changes in our household that mental illness brought about. If there had been a support group for them at that time, it would have helped us all. Oftentimes, without the support of your family, mental health care can become inaccessible. Having a space for educating others on mental illness and allowing them to cope with how it's impacting their lives may be a stepping stone in allowing for greater accessibility of mental health care in Nunavut. My experiences may not be the experiences of everyone who's been in Nunavut's mental health care system, but they are a testament to the fact that something needs to change. Without my support network, I wouldn't have been able to navigate the system, and that's troubling. Accessibility in mental health care is defined by a lot of things. Although you may be able to speak to a mental health worker, they may not be able to provide you with the type of help you need. They may not be able to offer continuous care. They may not have access to the proper facilities to assist you. Or you may not have the support system at home to provide you with the assistance in reaching out to mental health care in the first place. And that is not what accessibility looks like. None of us so desperately needs a mental health care system that provides for our communities. And to do that, accessibility needs to become a priority. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time. It's been a while since I've been okay Hard to see the bright side on the darkest days But the sun will rise for that I'll stay For that I'll stay It's been a while since I've been okay I'll stay for the things I'll learn Hard to see the bright side on the darkest days I'll stay for the joy I'll bring But the sun will